0: Man, well, I definitely think that growing up with Jesus would have had its perks, but undeniably would have been a pretty difficult act to follow. Now, some of you might be utterly confused as to what the heck is going on in that video. Uh, uh, We are entering today into part five of five. We are wrapping up this series called, What Would It Take? And in this entire series, it all hinges on this one question. Uh, What would it take for your brother to convince you that he is the son of God? Like, Like actually the son of God. And throughout this series, we've been really challenging you to like Actually, think about that. Like, what would it take for your brother, for your sister, uh, for a sibling, for a niece, for a nephew, for somebody that is close to you, for a best friend to convince you that they were, like, truly, like actually the son of God. Now, I've conceded to all of you that after actually giving this like a good amount of thought, I have three siblings, an older brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. Um, I came to the conclusion, in fact, that there is nothing, nothing that my siblings could do to convince me that they were like actually the, the son of God. And it's not because they've necessarily done something wrong. It's not because that they're awful people. It's just because that's an absurd thing to claim. That, that would be preposterous for somebody to try to convince you that they were like truly the son of God. Uh, and I'm pretty well convinced that if you gave this really any amount of thought at all, that you too would actually come to the exact same conclusion. Now, Jesus, as in the son of God, Jesus, a lot of you perhaps didn't know this. Uh, Jesus had siblings. Jesus had four younger brothers. Jesus had younger sisters as well. And and you might think that given the fact that they had a front row seat to the life of Jesus, uh, that they just bought in, that they believed that their older brother was indeed the son of God. But that's actually not the case. In fact, this is one of the more interesting details surrounding the life of Jesus. Jesus's siblings did not believe Jesus. They did not believe that their older brother was the son of God. Even after all the miracles even though he could draw these, these pretty big crowds, even though he was a very, very captivating communicator, that they did not believe that their older brother was the son of God, that they in fact assumed what every single one of you would assume if your older brother tried to convince you that he was the son of God, that they assumed that Jesus had lost his mind. But, but you fast forward to the year AD 62, and we've been talking about this, and something pretty interesting happens. In the year 80, 62, James, one of the younger brothers of Jesus, is put to death. He is killed for his faith in his Savior, who just so happens to be his brother. He's put to death because he will not stop talking about the fact that his older brother is the Son of God, and, and, and that's odd because think about it logically. What, what takes a person from full blown skeptic, from there ain't no way my older brother is the son of God, to now suddenly willing to die for his faith in his brother. And the game changer for James, and presumably the rest of G- Jesus' siblings, was something that James saw. See, James saw his risen brother. He saw his risen savior, and if you've been tracking with us throughout this series, you know what's coming next. When your brother predicts his own death and he predicts his own resurrection, and then you see your risen brother, after having days earlier just witnessed him being nailed to and killed on a cross, you in fact do what anybody would do in that scenario. You believe. And once James saw his risen brother, he he fortunately for us writes a bunch of this stuff down that he learned from Jesus in this letter aptly titled James. It's a letter that I think every single person in this room ought to take seriously. No matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey and not because it's recorded for us in the Bible, I think it's actually better than that, but because of what we see in the life of James, because of the complete 180 that we see in the life of James from full-blown skeptic to willing to die, believer. And so if you've missed any of the weeks in this series, which probably describes just about every one of you, we'd really encourage you to go to Grumlaw.com slash messages and catch yourself up there or find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. But before we really get into this today and, and we look at some more of the words from James, I would love uh, to pray for all of you and pray for myself. So allow me to do that now. God, uh, we thank you Uh First and foremost, for for these people that that are going public with their faith today, Uh, it's obviously why there's a lot of people here and that are just ready to support and, you know, man, just celebrate what God has done in so many different people's lives. Um, But I ask God that we would pause for a moment and uh, we would all be just willing to listen to whatever it is you want to say to us today. Um, that we'd have soft hearts, that we'd have open hearts. We, we, we would just be open to whatever it is you want to speak to us, because I'm confident if that we are willing to listen, then you have something to say to us. You're an incredible, incredible Father. Uh, we thank you that you have taken an interest in every single one of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Now. Uh, against my better judgment, and despite various warnings from, from different people, uh, I, I'm going to bring something up right now that probably sits somewhere between fairly and, and extremely controversial. Uh, th- this is something that divides homes. It, it divides families. This is something that splits churches. It turns friends into enemies. Uh, and I fully recognize that by me bringing this up here this morning that, that some of you probably will never return. Um, go ahead and put up that next slide. Do you like Coke or do you like Pepsi? Are you a Coke or are you a Pepsi, right? I mean, which direction do you happen to lean? It's kind of like bring it up like, hey, who'd you vote for in a casual conversation? Uh, now, now, here's really the part of this that, that might make some of you upset. I, I have props here this morning. I have a Coke and, and I, have a, I have a Pepsi. Um, I gotta tell you, I actually like Pepsi. I am a Pepsi guy. Some of you are just, it's so good. I prefer Pepsi. I side with Pepsi in this debate. Now, before some of you storm out of here and tune me out here for the rest of our time together, allow me to at least partially explain myself. Go ahead and put that next slide up. Uh, This beautiful family here, this is uh, near and dear friends of my wife and I's. uh, Their names are the Bishops. Uh, And my wife and I had the privilege of going to church and serving alongside them at the church that we were at before here. And in fact, right before we kind of left it to help start this church, uh, they actually left because of a job relocation and are now uh, down in Ohio. Now, Sean, the husband, the the dad here in this picture, he works for Pepsi. And and so this kind of began this thing where initially, I'll be honest, like, I think they're both kind of good. But I always leaned in the direction of Pepsi just because there were so many people that were just so arrogant about how much better Coke was that I was like well I'm going against the grain I like Pepsi but once I met this family I was like really pro Pepsi because he would just tell me about some of the tactics that Coke would use to get more of the market share and I just started to feel bad if I drank Coke I'm like sweet little Caroline isn't gonna be able to go to college if I keep slurping this stuff down or like Abel's not gonna be able to get me like Christmas presents if I keep drinking this stuff so I just became like all in for Pepsi we don't drink you know Coke products in our anymore. We are are pro Pepsi. Uh, In fact, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I were at a wedding uh, and it was somebody that was at the church. So there are a lot of people that we knew there, you know, from the church, including uh, Sean and including Brooke. And uh, when we went up to like to the drink station uh, after the wedding at the reception, uh, they had tons of different beverages, but they only had one soda. And the only soda that they had for you to pick is Coke. And and I was a little conflicted because like, I was like, "I I really want a soda right now, but I can't drink a Coke in front of these people. I mean, I'm what kind of a terrible person would do that? And so it's like 30 minutes into the reception and I finally just like can't handle it anymore. Uh, If you know me, I'm a fan of just soda. And so I was like, okay, I'm going for it. But I I did the whole scout around the room. It's like this big barn with two stories. I'm like, okay, are they looking at me? Okay, they're not looking at me. And I like wander over and I like reach down and grab a Coke, I pop the top off and I, I make it back to my table. I sit back down and I start looking around like, okay, he's not seeing me. I gotta drink this quick. I'm not kidding, this is really how this went down. And I tilt the Coke back, and no sooner does it hit my lips than I make eye contact with Sean up in the balcony. He is looking right at me. And I'm like, oh, no, you know that feeling when you get your hand stuck in the cookie jar, you have no explanation. And again, mind you, there are people at this wedding that don't know either of us. And he, at the top of his lungs, right in the middle of the reception, goes, "Shay!" And I was just like, oh, I was so devastated. I was like, I have betrayed my friend. And he literally looked at me and he went, (laughs) and he walked away. And it was like, I was like, I have lost a friend because I decided I had to drink a Coke. Now, here's where I'm going with all this. And here's the point. And I I don't think really any of you would debate this. Uh, You can't drink Coke and be a friend of Pepsi. You cannot drink Pepsi and be a friend of Coke, right? Like these two things are diametrically opposed. You do not go into Coke's headquarters and find Pepsi vending machines. You do not go into Pepsi's headquarters and go into their cafeteria and find Coke in their fountain machines. If you are not for Pepsi, you are against Pepsi. If you are not for Coke, you are against Coke. Now, with that thought in mind, we are now going to dive into some of the words from James, the suddenly believing brother of Jesus. Now, Some of you look a little bit excited. You're like, oh my gosh, is James the brother of Jesus going to put this whole Coke versus Pepsi thing to rest? I'm sorry to disappoint you. They did not have it back then. But I think you will see the point here, the parallel in just a minute. Now it's worth noting, and as we've been mentioning this throughout this series, uh, that James has a bit of a haphazard writing style you know, he, he's kind of all over the place. He comes across his scatterbrain. He basically just states things as facts. And then without any explanation, he is just off and on to the next subject. And I tell you that because that's exactly what we are going to experience again right here. And, and I got to warn you, as James is talking right here, he is coming in hot. He is like coming in guns a blazing right at the beginning of the fourth chapter. He says, you adulterers, And again, you get the idea that he's kind of pointing the finger at all of us. He's like, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Now, I'm running under the assumption that probably uh, just about everybody in this room knows what adultery is, but just in case, it's when a married person happens to sleep with somebody that is not their spouse. It's kind of the fancy term to describe married people who cheat. Now, as you are probably smart enough to know, James is not addressing the relatively small number of people in the world that happen to cheat on their spouses. As his rhetorical question here would suggest, he's addressing the concept of adultery against God, which is original largely Jewish audience would have been all too familiar with. Let me give you a quick history lesson here. The ancient Israelites, often referred to as God's chosen people. In fact, if you ever pick up this book called the Bible and read the Old Testament, which is kind of like the first half of the Bible, it's in large part a history lesson on the Israelites. And what you see as you're reading through that is that the Israelites, even though they were called God's chosen people, kind of had a knack for turning from God and mixing in other religions and mixing in other gods, particularly from the lands that they had overtaken. In fact, if you read that thing front to back, it's kind of this roller coaster ride for the Israelites where they would go through a period of time where they were really dedicated to God and and, and they would follow his rules and they would follow his laws. And I mean, they were like by the book, but then they kind of get distracted. They get pulled away by the ways of the world and they'd start worshiping these other gods and God would punish them in some way. He'd grab their attention. They're like, holy smokes. Like, okay, we're we're back. We're, We're so sorry we did that, God. And then they'd follow him for a period of time and then they'd backslide again. And it was up and down, up and down, up and down. Now, most notably, they would, try to wor- they would try to combine the worship of God, the same God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings, uh, and an ancient false God known as Baal. So like an adulterous wife, they wanted the husband and they wanted the home, God, but they also wanted the lover, Baal. And, and what James is doing right here is he is describing certain Jesus followers and certainly some of the Jesus followers that sit in this very room, he's describing them as adulterers, Because it would seem that they're trying to convince the people around them that they really do love God, but yet they are also having an affair with the world. And James would tell us, who learned it all from his brother Jesus, that you have to pick a side. And even those of you that are sitting here today, and listen, I recognize that we all find ourselves at different points in this faith journey. Some of you have been at this church thing for basically your entire life. You could do it in your sleep. Uh, others of you, you're back. You stepped away from church for a pretty significant period of time, and now you're back and you're starting to explore all over again. Uh, others of you, this is an entirely new experience for you, and you're starting to just try to get those basic questions answered that we, I think we all have floating around in our heads. Uh, others of you, come on, let's be honest. You got bribed. You were forced into showing up here today. But no matter where you find yourself in this whole faith journey, oftentimes we prefer to play the middle ground. We we try to play this indifferent card and James is saying, uh, even though you won't necessarily admit this to anyone else, even though you might not even admit it to yourself, you are picking a side that the way that you live your life, your actions tell the story that they tell if you are either for God or you are for the world. Now, this is a concept that that Jesus would speak about uh, all the time. So it's certainly worth clarifying. And one of the things that I've learned as a pastor is that most of the time when people kind of have these basic questions circling around in their heads, uh, they don't ask because they just assume that they're the only ignoramus in the room that doesn't understand these things. And that is certainly far from the case. So so the question circling around your head might be, uh, what exactly do you mean by the world? When Jesus or any of the other writers throughout this book called the Bible mention the world, almost exclusively, they're not talking about like planet Earth. that They're not talking about our globe. They're referring to something that's a little bit deeper than that. They're referring to the world's way of doing things. See, the world is selfishness. The world is materialism. The world is ego. It's pride. It's bursts of anger. It's impatience. It's worry. It's anxiety. It's harshness. It's a lack of self-control, that you are just easily pushed any direction by whatever feels right to you in that moment. That the world screams, it's all about me. I, I don't have a really great concern outside of like my immediate family members. Otherwise, it's all about me. And just in case you were wondering, every single person in this room, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, we all lean, we all drift, we all naturally head in that direction. We all naturally drift towards the world. Now every once in a while, I'll get pushed back on this. People are like, no, that's not the case. You know, People are good and I'm like, no, you're not. We, we all lean in this direction. Now let me give you one example of this. Let, let's say you're in a grocery store. And in the middle of the aisle, uh, there's a kid as you walk in that is just going berserk, like meltdown of all meltdowns. And it's not like a little one. I mean, it's one where they're kicking cereal boxes. They're calling their mom names. I mean, they're saying things that are just like, I can't believe that's coming out of a five-year-old's mouth. I mean, it's nasty. Did did you in those situations naturally, be honest, in those situations, you naturally go, oh, man, you know, that kid's probably going through something really hard at home. Maybe even at school. You know, parenting—it can just be ah, be such a tough thing. And then go lay your hand on that person's shoulder and say, "Hey, I want to—I I just want to offer you some words of encouragement right now." Or, or, or maybe, maybe naturally, do you tend to go <sighs> roll your eyes internally, externally, and go, "What in the heck is wrong with that kid? <laughs> that 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 parent needs to get that kid under control." L- l- let me give you another one. Let's say you're running late to work, you have a morning commute, it takes you about 30 minutes to get to work, and uh, you're already running five, 10 minutes late, it took you a little extra time getting out the door, and uh, you're on the expressway, and you hit a traffic jam, and it's like gridlock, and, and you're looking it up on Waze, you're looking it up on you know Google Maps, you find out there's an accident a couple miles ahead, and like you ain't moving. Do you naturally, naturally in that situation just kind of go, well, this is this is kind of unfortunate, but, but there's still so much positive to look at around in my world. In fact, somebody right up there is probably having a far worse day than I and, and then do you proceed to pray for those people that were in the accident naturally or do you kinda tend to naturally sit there and go, that's going on up here. Why didn't tell me this? And then start frantically thinking through excuses, lies that you can tell your boss as to why you were late again. That's, that's what I thought. We, we all lean in this direction. And and, and I'm telling you, and I wholeheartedly believe this, one of the most significant moments in any of our lives comes about when you are honest enough to look yourself in the mirror and recognize that you are corrupt. When you're able to look at yourself and say, I am a, and we can almost not get the word out because it feels so heavy, it feels so, uh, but, but you can admit to yourself that I am a sinner. I am a natural friend of the world. That that there is, man, as hard as it is to admit that there is something wrong with me. When you recognize that you'll naturally stray towards the world and left to your own devices, you will ultimately ruin you. You will become a selfish, materialistic, egotistical impatient worried son of a gun and James would tell us who again learned it all from Jesus that there is no middle ground and by becoming a friend of the world and embracing the world's way of doing things you are indeed and he uses harsh language here on purpose you are indeed an enemy of God G- Jesus would put it this way. I mean, these are, these are literally Jesus' words. We find this in the book of Matthew. It's one of the four books that records for us Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and, and his resurrection. I mean, this is, again, Jesus speaking. He said, anyone who isn't with me, you oppose me. And, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. And, and the reason that James and the reason that Jesus are so definitive about this is because they know what what deep down every single one of us happened to know. That without any intervention, we will all naturally drift towards the world as opposed to God. Now, I I recognize that in a room this size, uh, there are inevitably people that are sitting here, and you won't admit it out loud, but you're kind of thinking to yourself like, okay, so I drift towards the world. What's the big deal? You know, like it's to you, that does not necessarily sound like the worst thing imaginable. Maybe you're okay with being impatient. Maybe you're okay with snapping at your kids, with snapping at your spouse every once in a while. You're okay with continuing to live in worry. But, but Jesus ironically looks at you and says, even though you're trying to pretend that you're okay with that, I'm actually not okay with that. We often lose sight of the fact that when when we sinned, when we chose the world over God, which every single one of us has done, and in turn fractured our relationship with God, in that moment, God could have just as easily chose to not get involved. He could have hung an out of order sign on the earth and he could have chosen to walk away. But God, seeing us in our sin, seeing us in the mess that we had created for ourselves, seeing us choose and follow the ways of the world, he chose to get involved. God God looked at all of you and he said, I love you. Not not you in broad terms, specifically you so much. I care so much about you that I'm actually not okay with you ruining yourselves. And, And then he proceeded to offer his one and his only son to us so that we could be made right with him so that we could have the opportunity to have a relationship with God Almighty. Some of you, you need to hear this so badly today, particularly those of you that again, you just don't wanna be here. Like again, you got bribed, you were forced into showing up here today. And I'm telling you, the message of Jesus comes alive when you understand this. And we talk about this all the time, but God is for you. God wants what is best for your life. God's not trying to move you away from the world's way of doing things because it sounds like a good idea or or, or because he's some sort of a control freak. It is, in fact, way better than that. No, 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 he's going, for example, when you start to be more patient with your kids and you start to be more patient with your spouse, and you begin to exercise patience with your coworkers, you'll actually be a a better parent. You'll be a better husband. You'll, You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better boss. You'll be a better coworker. When you stop trying to run the rat race of constantly trying to get more and better and newer, a better house, a bigger house, a newer vehicle, more of those and you instead begin to leverage your income, your wealth, for the benefit of the people around you who have less than you, it's ironically then and only then that you will find what it is that you have been after all along. It's then that you will find contentment. When you keep trying to control everything around you and you in turn, you transform yourself into this anxiety-stricken mess, but, but, but instead you choose to actually place your true trust in God, and, and not just some of your trust, but like all of it, you, you truly give him control of everything, it's then that you will begin to experience the peace of God that seems to be talked about so much in the Bible. He, he's for you, which, which is precisely why he is so anti the world. Because he knows the world ultimately will not be what is best for you. So, so, so back for a moment to our Coke, to our Pepsi analogy. You, you can't drink Coke and call yourself a friend of Pepsi. You, you cannot drink Pepsi and call yourself a friend of Coke. As you sit there slurping down your Coca-Cola Classic and in between sips, you are trying to describe to me how much it is that you really do love Pepsi. I and anyone else will not believe you because your actions, your actions mean so much more than your words. For, for, for just a moment right now, I, I wanna talk to all the people in the room that, that would identify as Jesus followers. If you would say that, that I am a Christian, I, I wanna talk to you and you alone. If you are new to this whole Christianity thing, if you are new to this whole church thing, I'm telling you, you are completely off the hook for what I am about to say right now. You ought not to pay attention to one word I say right now. I, I, I wanna talk to the people who know God is telling you to start living for him. You you know that God is calling you to make some changes in your life. And and he has been calling you to make these changes for a pretty significant period of time. And what's worse, you actually know that if you made these changes, it would be better for you. It would be better for the people around you, but yet you continue to ignore it. You, you, You can't continue to sit here You can't keep showing up here for an hour each week and try to convince me or anybody else for that matter that you really do believe Jesus. That that you really are one of his followers, but the extent of your loyalty surmounts to you showing up in a room like this for about an hour each week. You, You treat this strikingly similar to going to the movies, to going to a sporting event. You don't serve on a team You're not in a connect group. You don't spend time with Jesus on a daily basis. You've never given a nickel. You don't invite, and you don't tell anybody about what Jesus is doing in your life. Or or maybe you do. You, You maybe do give every once in a while. Maybe you did join a connect group. Maybe you serve on a team, but you still get drunk. You still watch porn. You keep watching that show, you keep overspending, you keep overindulging, you gossip, you keep sleeping with your girlfriend, and you have no, zero intention of changing. James would say, Jesus would say, you better believe you are picking a side. You are choosing the world, which makes you an enemy of God. Not an innocent bystander, not an absent-minded third party, but an enemy. And in fact, you're making Jesus look bad because you are watering down the message of Jesus. You're making Jesus very uncompelling to the world around us. Because unfortunately, our world lumps all Jesus followers into one category. And those people that are wholeheartedly and truly serving Jesus with their all are sitting looking at you like, I kind of just wish you would just get out of the way. You're not doing Jesus, you're not doing God a favor by sitting here for an hour each week. And so he says, I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. I have these moments sometimes where I read scripture and I'm like, ah. I don't think he meant that. And then you try to find like every concordance and like every commentary under the sun to support the idea that's already in your head. And, and this is kind of James' way is saying, hey, listen, I'm doubling down on this. I mean exactly what I am saying right now. Just in case you thought I meant something different. He wants to make sure this is crystal clear. Now, fortunately for us, this isn't one of those moments where he's just like off and on to the next subject. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, okay. It's like, I feel really terrible about myself right now. He's like, no, no, listen, there's help. There, there's a way to deal with this. And so he continues in verse seven. He says, so humble yourselves before God. Th- th- this is what I was alluding to. A seminal moment in our life comes about when you have the humility to admit that you are broken. When, when you have the humility to to, to understand and look yourself in the mirror that man, there is something wrong with me that left to your own devices, you will screw up your life. That you need help. That you need Jesus. It it isn't until you see yourself as a sinner that you will see a need for a savior. And then he continues, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and, and God will come close to you. How do we overcome the world? How do we overcome the, the evil one? I think the, the first big part of that is, is that that we resist. Ch- chances are, when I started speaking this morning, it didn't take very long into this message for you to have something that was already racking around your brain, that nagging thing that you just, uh, it's like it eats at you, you feel bad about it. but And chances are, what a lot of us do is we take some action against it we, we, we put up resistance, but it, it is like the minimal amount of resistance. It, it's just enough resistance so that we can go back and tell our friends and our loved ones, like, I tried, but I guess this is the way that life is just going to be. Like like, truly resist, like like, take drastic action. I, I had a friend uh, that for years, he, he would admit that he had an addiction to pornography, and, and he would take these, these little, little steps, and he's like, you know, I'd... I'd tell a friend to call me once a week and that didn't really seem to work. And then, you know, I, I told myself I wouldn't even pick up my phone past 8 p.m. because it seemed like when I would s- slip up, it would seem like it was usually sometime like right before I went to bed. So I said, I- I'm not going to pick up my phone past 8, but guess what? I didn't have the self-control to not pick up my phone past 8. And he would say that, that, that it didn't really change until he really started to resist. It wasn't until he took drastic action. He, he, put, he put filters on all of his electronic devices. He deleted certain apps altogether because he didn't trust himself to not go to like the discovery page on Instagram and see something that he knows he shouldn't see that would then trigger another thought. He, he started going to daily meetings to fight against sexual addictions in the same way the people who are alcoholics go to AA meetings. He was going to them daily. He said, every single time I would even have the slightest inclination, the slightest temptation, I would pray and I would just beg God to take it away. He's like, I really started resisting. And guess what happened all these years later? He fled. Satan, the evil one, our world is not looking for for a difficult target. It's looking for an easy target. He would tell you now, he's like, listen, I'm not perfect. Like, I still get tempted every once in a while, but it's pretty few and far between because I finally started resisting. And wouldn't you know it, those thoughts, that addiction, it began to flee from me. Take drastic action. And then one of the sweetest promises that we'll ever hear, come close to God and God will come close to you. He is so faithful as you move towards God, he will always move closer to you. Move away from the world, God's enemy. And when you know it, God will begin to move closer to you. Maybe the reason that some of you you feel such a great distance, a great gap between you and God is because you have become such a loyal friend to the world let's take this for it, for instance, uh, and I want to be really, really clear that this has not happened. I am totally making this up. And so nobody like cut the message up and be like, you're not going to believe what this guy said. Okay. L- let's just say hypothetically, I was to cheat on my beautiful bride, Andrea. I've not done that. I, I-, I don't think I will ever do that. I certainly hope not. Uh, but let's just say I I, I cheated on-, on my spouse and, and I got caught. And-, and after getting caught, I mean, I was full of remorse and I said, I was sorry. And I was like, oh my gosh, honey. And i, I- begged her to take me back and she uh, being filled with grace and forgiveness because she's in love with Jesus and that's who Jesus is, grace and forgiveness. She's like, okay, we, we will work through this. We'll do everything we can to try to make this marriage work. And I was like, okay, thank you. And after about 30 days of going to counseling and, and therapy and, and meeting with mentors and people that we trusted, it's like, man, th- things are going well. I mean, it's still a grind. It's, it's hurtful, but man, it, it's starting, it's seeing like we can maybe get over, over that hump. It seems like we can actually make this work. But about, again, 30 days into this, I decide, one day after work, I bring home the girl that I slept with. And I'm like, hey, honey, she's having dinner with us tonight. And Andrea probably comes outside with like a loaded 12 gauge. And she's like, what's happening here again? Like, like right, like bad moment. But I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't get too mad. Here's what you have to understand. You are my friend, honey. In fact, you're my best friend. Like you, there, there's nobody on this planet that I feel closer to than you. But I've given this a lot of thought and I've come to the conclusion that I want her to come around sometimes too. And every once in a while, it's not going to be like an everyday thing. She's going to come over for dinner. She'll play with the kids a little bit. It might be kind of nice, right? We'll have like another babysitter around about a couple weekends a year. Me and her, we're going to go out of town randomly. There'll be nights where I don't show up. Don't worry about it. Just call the red roof in. I'm probably there. Like, don't worry about it. Like just every once in a while, I'm going to go back to her. And I, I, I need you to be okay with that. Is there any chance that any spouse is going to be okay with that? Of course not. And you guys, it's equally ludicrous that we say, man, God, I love you so much. You're the number one priority in my life. I go to church on Sundays. I give you money. Sometimes I serve on a team. But then you keep going back to this side piece. You you, you keep going back over here and saying, okay, God, but I've straightened out so much of this stuff. I need you to be okay with this. He's not okay with it. We wouldn't be okay with it. So why would we expect him to? Why would we expect our heavenly father to get on board with that? He says, the minute you start picking the world, you make yourself an enemy to me. But once you start resisting the world, you'll begin to experience and feel a closeness to God like you have never experienced before. And so the question that I want to ask all of you this morning, as as we wrap this thing up, in particular, the Jesus followers that are sitting in this room, the people that would call themselves Christians, is where am I compromising? Where where are you compromising? Where, Where are you flexible? Where, where have you become tolerant of sin in your life? Where have you become accommodating? What's that thing in your life that you just keep blowing off is no big deal? And James would tell us that when we compromise, we're actually siding with the world, which helped me out makes us a what? Enemy of God. So where are you compromising? Where are you befriending the world? Jesus would beg you, get rid of it. He's going, my my goodness, I have something so much better for you. If you're sitting here today and it feels a little bit unsettling, it feels a little bit uncomfortable, unnerving, it's kind of the idea. (laughs) That was kind of James' idea when he started out this conversation by calling all of us adulterers. And make no mistake about it, being a, being a friend to God is hard. It, it's challenging, takes discipline. It'll make you stand out. It certainly isn't what comes natural. It'll often make you feel like the odd one out. But, but let's not forget that, that it's better. It's, it's contentment, it's, it's joy, it's purpose-filled, it's, it's peace. It creates stronger marriages. It'll make you a better parent. It'll create healthier relationships. God is for you. He he is begging you to choose him over the world. And again, not because it sounds nice. Not because he's just like a control freak. Not because he needs more friends, but because he genuinely wants what is best for you. And if you ever doubt that, remember, he sent his one and his only son to die for you. Knowing, think about this, knowing that there would be a whole mess of people that would still, despite that extraordinary act of love, there would be so many people that would still pick the world over him. That is love. That that, that is a kindness that we can't even wrap our heads around. That that, that is a God that that adores you and, and longs to be close to you.